If you, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some under the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, I'd like for you to take one of those, keep it as your own. Uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2 at home even and, and uh, read the Christmas story with your family maybe this Thursday. And, uh, but that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our series called The Thrill of Hope, where we've been using lines from the classic Christmas carol, O Holy Night, as a springboard to talk about the meaning of Christmas. And what what makes this night holy? What sets it apart from every other night? Well, as the song points out, it's the night when Christ was born. Now, no one knows when Christ really was born. Some speculate it was probably in the springtime. We've picked December 25th as the day that we celebrate Christ's birth, but know that there are 364 other possibilities to the actual date. We just don't know. But here's the thing. As I was listening to uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers this past week, Michael Rydelnik, uh, he said this. He said, when Christ was born isn't the most significant thing. The fact that Christ was born is what is significant. It was God taking on flesh, God adding humanity to his deity, and God sending his one and only son so that whoever believed in him wouldn't have to perish, but that they could have everlasting life. That's the significant thing. And the Christmas carol, O Holy Night, it gives us the proper response to this newborn king and what is my favorite part of the song. I bet it is yours as well. The part when we get to, to fall on your knees. It's the high point of the song. Don't you love it when we get there? The proper response to this child king is that we would fall on our knees and worship. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is what, what, is, what is worship? What does that look like? And here's the thing. You are a worshiper. Every person in this room is a worshiper. Some of you I haven't even met before, but I can say with absolute confidence, you are a worshiper because worship is what you and I do every single day. Now, uh, you may or may not be worshiping Christ, but everyone is worshiping something. In fact, I would agree with author Louis Giglio when he says that we are all wired for worship. It's in our DNA, and he describes worship in this way. He says, worship is our response to what we value most. And you might want to write that down if you're taking notes this morning. It's a key statement that we're going to come back to throughout the morning, that worship is our response to what we value most. And I want you to think about that. I want you to ask yourself this question, what is it that I value most? And it should become very clear what that thing is with maybe just a few other simple questions. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? How, how do you spend your, your resources? What captivates your thoughts? It could be sports. It could be food. Some people worship celebrities or a new iPhone. A lot of people worship their hobbies. Every single one of us has something that we worship. And I want you this morning to identify what is it for you. Now, here's where this maybe gets a little bit uncomfortable because what I want to suggest today and what I want to build off of is that if what you value most is not Jesus, it will fail you. It will fail you every single time, and it'll do that in two specific ways. First, if what you value most is not Jesus, it will enslave you. 
whatever it is, you know, you've determined it's absolutely essential to your life and to your happiness. You, you pour time, you pour money and energy into it, whatever it takes to attain that thing. It consumes your thoughts. It consumes your life. And if what you value most is not Jesus, it will enslave you. But second, even if you do achieve it, even if you do possess it, if what you're valuing most isn't Jesus, it will not satisfy you. It won't satisfy you. Everything inside of us wants to argue that that's not true. But let's be honest. We've all experienced it before, haven't we? You know, haven't we wanted that one thing so much only to get it and to find ourselves still empty, still desiring, still unsatisfied? And then we move on to the next thing because surely those other things were just a fluke. But this next thing, this is the one that's really going to satisfy me. No, it won't. If what you're pursuing first in your life is not Christ, it will never satisfy you and it will enslave you every single time. And you may not want to call it worship, but that's exactly what it is because we are wired for worship. It's just that our default setting since the fall of man is to worship the wrong things. And so that's why this holy night is so significant because though long lay the world in sin and error pining, on this holy night, Jesus appeared and we met the one who is actually worthy of our worship, able to satisfy, able to save us from our sins. And so today I wanna take a look at some events uh, that took place shortly after Jesus was born. And I think these passages will help us to understand what our response should be as we reflect on the birth of our King. Let's read it together in Matthew chapter two. It starts by saying this. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Now, most of us have heard the story of the Magi. Sometimes we refer to them as wise men. I actually played the part of one of these wise men in an elementary school play or church play. I'm sure there's a VHS tape with some great footage on it somewhere. Uh, but, but I bet most of you are familiar with the song that starts out, We Three Kings of Orient Are. We've all heard that, haven't we? But there are just a few things wrong with the words to that song. First of all, these men weren't kings. The term magi comes from the Greek word magos, and it, it's where we get our English word magician. But in Jesus' day, it would have been understood as someone who studies the stars. So these men weren't kings, they were astronomers or astrologers. Second, they probably weren't from the Orient. Uh, we don't know for certain where they're from, but it's most commonly held that these men were probably from Babylon. And I'll tell you why that's significant in just a minute. So they weren't kings. They weren't from the Orient. And, and third, nowhere in scripture does it say that there was only three of them. We get that number probably because they brought three gifts. And so we assume it was three guys, each bringing one gift. But we don't know that for certain. There could have been any number of magi who came. But these wise men had studied the skies and they'd studied the stars and they noted in this instance that something new had appeared in the sky, something significant, something that they perceived as a star. And it was commonly believed that stars declared the birth of kings who were destined for greatness. Now, not only did these men read the stars, but I believe that they also knew the scriptures, specifically how the prophet Daniel, about 500 years earlier, had pinpointed the time of the Messiah's coming. We read it in Daniel 9, 25, where it says, know and understand this. 
from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that is Jesus, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens, 49, and 62 sevens, 434. And so you put those two numbers together and you come, with, come up with 483 years until the appoint, anointed one would come. Now, where was Daniel when this prophecy was given? Well, he was in Babylon. It was the Babylonian captivity. And it's very likely that these magi were familiar with this prophecy that had been spoken and had been given in their own country. They did the math and they knew that the 483 years had passed since it was written. And now they see something like a new star in the sky and they recognize it as the time that had come for something truly important to take place. A king destined for greatness had been born. And so they go to search for him. And notice in verse two, it tells us the reason for their journey. It says, we have come to worship him. That's the whole purpose that these guys took off on this journey following this star was because they wanted to come and worship and so the star, it leads them first to Jerusalem where they encounter King Herod. And this is Herod the Great, okay? He's the father of Herod Antipas, who we read about later in scripture at the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, but, but this is Herod the Great. And when the Magi ask where they might find the one born King of the Jews, look at Herod's response in verse three. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, he was disturbed. Why? Well, because Herod the Great hadn't been born king of the Jews. Herod the Great had clawed and schemed his way to the top, and he was made king actually by the Romans. In fact, Herod wasn't even a true Jew. His father was Idumean, and the Idumeans were viewed as, as half-breeds, part Jew, part something else. And his mother was an Arab. So, so Herod the Great wasn't a true Jew, and he wasn't born a Jew. He wasn't the king that these magi were looking for. And the thought of someone coming after his throne disturbed him. Look at verse 4. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And jump to verse 7. It says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. So Herod, he gets nervous. And he starts scheming again. He wants to know everything he can about this new threat to his throne. And understand that Herod was a very powerful and very dangerous man. He was insanely jealous and he was paranoid about protecting his power and about protecting his throne to the point that he killed, he murdered two of his own sons and his own father-in-law. So if you think family relations are going to be rough at Christmas for you this year, Think about Herod the Great. This guy was pure evil and the people feared him. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute that you're one of the Magi and you have now come face to face with this man who is of supreme power. Every wish is his command. Every pleasure is at his disposal. I mean, he is number one. And on the surface, Herod was an absolute picture of worldly success. And I have to wonder if the Magi questioned you know, is Herod the one? Is, is he the one that we've been looking for? But what I want you to understand is that Herod represents everything that distracts us from Jesus. Herod represents everything that distracts us from Jesus. He represents wealth. 
He represents fame. He represents power. He represents all of these things that, that steal our attention from Jesus. And isn't it true that sometimes we, we genuinely set out to follow Jesus, but we get sidetracked, sidetracked by the things that, that Herod represents. And we settle for life in Jerusalem instead of continuing on to Bethlehem. But the Magi didn't do that. They looked past all the wealth, all the power, and they knew that this man was not the one that they were looking for. The one they came to worship was not in Jerusalem. And look at verse 9. It says, After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And here's where I want to spend uh, the rest of our time this morning, because in, in verse 11 there is really where we find our application. Because the response of these wise men when they encountered Jesus is still the response of wise men and women today. And in verse 11, we see three specific things that these men did when they come into contact with the child king. First, we see them bow down. These men literally fell on their knees and they bowed down out of respect and reverence and recognition of who Jesus is. To bow down is to take a posture of submission and it's something that's seen throughout scripture when people uh, come into contact with the divine. In Joshua 5.14, we read that when he met a messenger from God, that Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. And he asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? David, the warrior king, writes in Psalms, I will bow down toward your holy temple and I will praise your name. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its names, its name. And, and these are just a few examples from Scripture where people encounter the divine and they bow down before God. They show submission to the king. So what does that mean for us? Does that mean that we should literally get down on our knees right now? You know, that actually wouldn't be a bad practice for us to get into, but I want you to understand something about bowing down. The posture itself means nothing if our hearts aren't submitted. The problem with the posture is that you and I could get down on our knees, put our heads to the earth, and look the part of a submissive person without ever submitting anything in our hearts. It's just posing and this is what Jesus accused the Pharisees of over and over again, because bowing down, it begins in our hearts. So let me go back to, to my original question this morning. What is it that you value the most? What is it that your heart is bowed down to is another way to ask that question. Is it God or is it a heart that's distracted by lesser things? If that's the case, I, I just invite you to confess that to the Lord this morning to lay those pursuits of lesser things at his feet and to be done with them today. These magi, they knew that there was nothing greater, nothing more worthy than Jesus. And so they fall to their knees. They bowed down with hearts submitted to the king. And then the text tells us that they worshiped him. That's the second thing that we see them doing. 
They worship him. Now, we mentioned earlier that worship is our response to what we value most. And what the Magi are doing here is declaring with their lips that what they value most is Jesus, that he is the most valuable thing to them. And you know, we do that every single Sunday here at Genesis Church. I can't remember a single Sunday when we didn't worship. We didn't come in here and sing songs of praise to God and speak words of his goodness and his faithfulness and his love. But I want you to know this morning that worship isn't just singing. Worship isn't just words from our mouth. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 15, 8, he says, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. See, it goes back to our hearts again. Jesus says, I don't want you just to go through the motions. His desire for us is that we would worship him, but true worship flows from a heart that is bowed down and submitted to him. True worship flows from hearts that are in love with Jesus. God's not looking for lip service. When we come before him, he's looking at our hearts. I want you to think about this in the context of a marriage relationship. And I'll use my own marriage as a, for instance, so that you don't get in trouble. Uh, But what if all year long, I neglected loving my wife? What if, I, what if all, all year long, I just said, hey, babe, I'm going fishing, so you watch the kids. You know, honey, it's deer season. You clean the house. Uh, hey, babe, the game's on. You make supper. Hey, sweetheart, I'm tired. Could you put the kids to bed? And then our anniversary rolls around, and I buy my wife the nicest bouquet of flowers that Kroger has to offer. And I take it home to her, and I say, honey, I cherish you. I love you. I would do anything for you. I would lay my life down for you. Do you think that would go over well? Do you think that those words would would mean much to my wife? Do you think that she would believe them? No. Why? Because my words and my actions don't line up. And hear me on this. The, The words themselves, they aren't wrong. They're not the wrong things to say. In fact, they're the perfect words if they're actually what I'm pursuing in my marriage. So I was simply asked this morning, when it comes to worship, are your words and your actions lining up? And I'm not saying you have to be perfect or you shouldn't sing. What I'm saying is that I'm afraid that some of us are singing, Jesus, you're all I want. Jesus, you're all I need, when actually what we really want is a better job or a nicer car or or a, you know, a bigger home, or a, a new boyfriend, or a new girlfriend, or a new relationship, whatever it might be. And those words that are coming out of our mouth, they're not lined up with our action. Our hearts are bowed down to something less than God. And what I'm saying is, let's just be honest when we come into this place. We don't have to be perfect to sing songs of worship to God, but sometimes I think we need to start by saying, Lord, you know what? I blew it this week. I've been putting too much attention on things that don't matter. I've been putting too much focus on on things that are are nowhere near your value. And so as I sing these songs this morning, Father, I just want to admit that I'm coming back. I'm coming back to what matters most, and it's you. And I want you to help me to grow in bowing and submitting to you. Help me turn from, from all of that other stuff and to give you all my worship. God desires for us to come before him with hearts bowed down and worshiping with true words from our lips. And we see the Magi do one other thing in response to Jesus. It's probably the thing that they're best known for. They give him gifts. They give him gifts. They honor Jesus with with treasures, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And I think we're probably all familiar with gold. Most of us uh, maybe have some form of gold on our our finger or around our neck or maybe even in our teeth. Uh, but, But 
I would, I would guess that uh, not many of you brought frankincense with you this morning. Did anybody bring any myrrh with them this morning? Or, you know, these gifts, they don't make much sense to us, do they? Because we don't, we don't commonly work with those things today. And I bet they're not on your Christmas list this year. But uh, I want to show you a picture of, of frankincense. It's actually a, a resin. Uh, this is frankincense in its raw form. It's a sap or a resin from the Bozuela tree. Uh, and it's used in incense and in perfumes. And, uh, and I've got a picture of myrrh as well. This is myrrh actually dried. It's also a tree resin. Um, myrrh is also used as a perfume or as incense. It also has some medicinal values. And so a lot of people have speculated, you know, when you think about the gifts that were given of gold and frankincense and myrrh, what was the value of these things? What was the total value of the gift that was given to Jesus? And the reality is we just don't know because there's no more specifics given about the gift we don't know how much they brought, but it would have been the finest that the Magi could have afforded to give to Jesus. And they, they represented the fact that these Magi valued him the most, so they gave him valuable gifts. And this holy night, it challenges us to the same kind of response. Not that we would give gold or frankincense or myrrh, but each of us has gifts and talents and ability and resources and all kinds of treasures that we can lay before Jesus and here's an interesting side note that I want to bring up. If you continue reading in Matthew chapter 2, what you'll find is that the wise men, they outsmart Herod. They don't reveal Jesus' location and they sneak home by a different route. But Herod's response is that he, he orders that every boy in Bethlehem under the age of two be murdered. He's so paranoid about his throne and his power that he just decides to wipe every young boy out so that this king will be killed. But God warned Joseph in a dream to escape to Egypt where the family stayed until Herod the Great died and that current threat had gone away. So here's what I want you to consider. What if it was the very gifts brought by these wise men that was God's provision and that sustained Mary and Joseph and Jesus on that journey to Egypt. And during that time in Egypt, that would have been an expensive journey. It would have been an expensive stay. They're in a brand new country. They don't, they don't even maybe speak the language there. We don't know all of the dynamics, but what if, what if it was God's provision through these wise men that these valuable gifts would be his provision during that time of escaping a madman king? And the same is true for us today, that sometimes God uses our gifts in ways we would have never imagined for his purposes and for his plan and for his glory. It's true of the gifts that you give even through Genesis Church. Do you know that, that your gifts this year and your generosity have helped us sustain people in places like Haiti and Ukraine, places like Myanmar and Albania, even right here in Indianapolis, as many of you brought gifts for Food for Souls last week. And, and we have no idea we have no idea how God is using those gifts in people's lives, maybe even on a, a cold, cold morning like this morning to bless them and to sustain them. But your generosity is where it begins. Your giving of gifts to God is one of the ways that you worship him and that you show your love for him. And so today, here's, here's what we're going to do. Obviously, we've kind of flip-flopped the service a little bit, uh, but we want to provide some opportunities to respond to Jesus in the same way that the Magi did. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, if you're physically able, I want to invite you this morning to literally bow down 
to fall on your knees before Jesus right where you are. And, and you don't have to do this. I certainly don't want you to do it as a show because, you know, remember, this is a, a posture of submission. It's a posture that reminds us that he is God and we are not. But if you're able and if you desire to, as I pray, I want to invite you just right where you are to, to turn and, and to kneel and to bow before Jesus. And if you can't physically get on your knees, remember God sees your heart and, uh, and you can close your eyes and you can picture in your mind that posture of submission before your king. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to bow down in prayer. And then Josh and the team are, are going to come and, and we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning worshiping and singing songs of love and devotion to our king. Uh, I want to invite you this morning as we worship to be asking the Lord to reveal any area where maybe your words and your heart and your actions aren't aligned and ask him to reveal that to you and then commit to, to making a change. Commit to, to aligning those things where your words and your actions would line up. Ask him to change your heart this morning. And finally, in the middle of that worship set, we're going to take up an offering and this isn't to be manipulative. It's not to guilt you into giving. Uh, I just want to offer an opportunity to follow the example of the Magi and to make our time of offering what it's supposed to be, a joyful time of worship to our Lord. That's why we celebrate. It's why we clap. It's why we, we shout when we take an offering at Genesis Church, because it's a joyful time of worshiping our King. So we're going to bow down, and we're going to worship Him, and we're going to give Him gifts even this morning. So let's begin. If you're able and if you desire, I want to invite you right now to, to bow down before our king, and I'm going to pray for us. Father God, we... Uh, we come before you this morning humbled, recognizing that you are God and we are not, and admitting, Father, that we live in a culture that calls us to put us in your place day after day. Uh, Father, to put the most value on ourselves and our own selfish pursuits when, Father, you are the one who is worthy of pursuing. You're the only one who is worthy of our worship and our praise. Father, forgive us this morning for pursuing anything above you, anything above Christ, anything above your glory. Father, I pray this morning that uh, as we take this posture before you, that it wouldn't be out of a show, but it would be out of hearts that desire to live in submission to you, hearts that desire to worship you, hearts that desire, Father, to give you the gifts that you deserve. And Father, as we move throughout this service today and as we strive to follow the example given to us by the Magi, Lord, we pray that you would find great glory in it. As we sing words of worship to you, Father, I pray that you would find uh, that our words and our actions are lined up. And Father, where they are not, uh, we thank you for grace. We thank you that, uh, that though you are making us perfect in Jesus, you realize that we are not there yet. And Father, that you, uh, you have given us your spirit to guide us and to lead us, Father, just that we would be attentive and listening for his voice in our lives, listening for that voice that tells us the way to go, and, Father, that we would be faithful to follow it. Lord God, we love you. We pray that you would accept our worship as pleasing and glorifying today. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.